Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory, or even the quality of a senior's healthcare. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. For today's episode, I'm delighted to be welcoming Tiffany Schubert back to the show. She is a practicing physical therapist and a nationally known expert on exercise and fall prevention. She's recently transitioned from a faculty position at the University of North Carolina, where she was part of their Center for Aging and Health, to a role in the private sector. She's currently working for Seismic, a company based in California that is making a new line of clothing designed to enhance posture, strength, and power. Tiffany first joined me on the show for episode five, which was about the Otago exercise program for fall prevention. And so I'm delighted to have her back on the show today because we are going to talk about some mobility myths about which exercises really work for fall prevention and also to address certain questions that I hear over and over again when it comes to preventing falls and maintaining mobility while aging. Tiffany, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Leslie. I'm delighted to be here and very excited to talk about this topic. Okay. Well, so I have some particular questions for you that have come up for me since the last time we talked, but I thought we might start by first just recapping the benefits of exercise for fall prevention, but also just like the basics of what kind of exercise actually works for fall prevention. So uh, we know that exercise in general is a wonderful thing for all people, especially for older adults, but not all exercise is equally useful when it comes to preventing falls. And so I think sometimes um, older people and their families can be a little confused about which ones to focus on, or certainly we as uh, sometimes as, as doctors can be a little unsure. So could you just tell us a little bit about what are the key things people should keep in mind if they wanna exercise specifically for the purpose of fall prevention? Yeah, no, this is it's a it's a wonderful topic and it's it can be really confusing at times. The exercise that we love to tell everybody to do is to go walk and that walking is really really good for you. And the fact of the matter is that walking is very good for you, but if you are weak or if you have balance impairments, walking is definitely not the first choice in exercise. Mm. So, yeah. And when um, years ago, when there were some public health recommendations that all older adults should be walking for exercise you know, up to you know 30 minutes a day, um, what we found was that the falls rates actually increased. And it makes sense if you think about it, because if you are weak and if you walk beyond your abilities, you're going to put yourself at a higher risk of falling. Mm-hmm. So what we really like to do is look and see where is somebody at and from there prescribe the right type of exercises. So no matter what, you have to have strong legs and you have to have good balance. And in order to maintain leg strength and in order to maintain your balance, you actually have to do exercise specific 
to making your legs strong and exercise specific to maintaining your balance. And so it, it sounds like what you're saying is that walking in of itself may not be enough to keep the legs as strong as they would be ideally to minimize fall risk. Because I have some people who tell me, well, but, um, you know, my mom walks every day. She walks every day, half an hour. Could that person still actually have legs that aren't as strong as they could be for her best fall prevention protection? Absolutely. And the reason being is that we actually have two types of muscle fibers in our body. We have muscle fibers that we call type one, and those are our postural muscle fibers. They're their muscles like our back muscles hold us up all day long. We don't get a lot of power out of those muscles. We have these other types of muscle fibers called our type two muscle fibers, which are our fast twitch muscle fibers, and they actually provide power. So when you see somebody who has muscles in their legs, they have been doing things like squats or, you know, lifting gentle, you know, lifting weights, those types of things. And what happens is as we get older, we actually start losing our power and it's a normal process of aging. And the only way to maintain it is by doing strength specific exercises. Mm -hmm. And actually I'll put a link in the show notes, but the Otago program and UNC had made those videos demonstrating the exercises. And I think it's helpful for people to see that you can sort of do leg strengthening exercises and they don't even necessarily have to be deep squats. Although I think there is a squat exercise there, but some of them are, you know, sitting in the chair and kind of lifting, straining out the leg, but that also eventually you do it with weights or something to, again, kind of push the muscle to build up that power, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Even things as simple as getting up from a chair without using your hands and doing that five times and then 10 times. That is a strength specific exercise that you'll see benefit from almost immediately. Okay. And then what about how often people need to do these uh, strengthening exercises or balance exercises? Is once a week enough? Sometimes people are in a once a week class. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, once a week is not enough. What, what the research shows is that really we need to be doing two to three hours a week of strength and balance exercises. And that's based on thousands of research studies looking at what is that optimal dose of exercise that we need to protect against a fall. And that sounds like a lot. Oh my gosh, two and a half hours. But that actually, if you did that, you actually would be meeting the minimum guidelines for physical activity for older adults. So you're sort of, you know, getting two birds with one stone with that one. Mm -hmm. And so how do you usually break it up for people? Should they do it uh, kind of um, strength and balance exercises both together three days a week? Or do you have a sort of uh, general formula that's easy that you find is, is easier for people to handle and works? Yeah, I do. And so basically it's, it's strength and balance 30 minutes a day and you can break it up however you want throughout that day. Like if you wanted to take 10 minutes in the morning after brushing your teeth and practice standing on one foot, you know, you could work up to a minute each side. You can do some gentle Tai Chi exercises, which are fantastic for balance. Um, and then you could, you know, at lunch do chair rises. Um, 
So you work up to that 30 minutes, three times a week. And then as you're getting stronger and as you're getting confident, you can actually start adding in a walking piece as well, because then you'll get your strength, you'll get your balance, and then you'll get your cardiovascular program when you're ready to do it with your walking program. And so when you do those things, so if you basically half an hour a day, you're doing something, then you're going to, you're going to get that, that really great protective effect against a fall. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, in terms of the strength exercises. Is it good for people to have days of rest, especially older adults? I know that some of them tell me that they feel like pretty, pretty tired or sore actually the next day. And I've even had some refuse to go back to uh, physical therapy because they felt like it made them so sore. Right. Yeah. Well, so muscle soreness is a good thing because it means you've been doing the right stuff. Um, but we always have to make sure that that truly is muscle soreness and not something else, not some irritation of a joint or or even, you know, referred pain from anything else. We're doing the exercise um, wrong, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So if you break it up that if you're doing strength and balance one day and then walking the next day, then you don't necessarily need that rest day because you're actually working different body parts and having and doing different things with them. And then if you don't have that ability, then taking that that rest day is always good, especially if you feel like you are pushing yourself. So if you feel like you've been exercising and it's sort of part of your routine and you're not feeling muscle soreness, then you know, that, that, that day of rest really came from the exercise science literature from, from weightlifters who are really lifting large amounts of weight. Um, and if you're just starting, you're going to have that same experience that you will be super sore and you want to take those rest days. But as you get stronger, that rest day isn't quite as important. But what about as you get older? And I'm thinking, uh, I'm going to actually read you a question that one of the Better Health While Aging readers sent to me. Uh, she said that she's um, 89, and I consider myself in good shape for my age, but each year I feel, quote, older. And the question I keep asking myself is, do I get tired because I'm doing too much or doing too little? Or is it just that I'm older? And she goes on to say that she's a retired professional dancer, lives on a hill, takes frequent walks, has stairs, is doing ballroom dance twice a week, and stretches every day. So, you know, somebody who actually sounds quite active for her age and uh, I was just wondering what your response would be, because I, I feel like that does come up. People sort of are hesitant. How do you uh, how do I know when I'm doing too much? Or, or sometimes adult children ask me that for their parents, especially for parents who are in their late 80s or 90s is how do we know if we're pushing them too much? Mm -hmm. That's such a great question. I love the too much or too little. Um, so I would say a couple of things. Um, so one thing is you know, looking at somebody's activity and what they're doing and making sure that that strength training piece is in there. Because again, if you are very active, if you are dancing, if you are walking, if you are going upstairs, but you're not doing that specific strength training piece, you are going to get more tired because your body actually doesn't have the reserves it needs. It doesn't have the power it needs. Mm -hmm. And it's super counterintuitive, but that's the first thing. And then the second thing is... I can speak for physical therapists that we actually tend to not push our patients hard enough. And we tend to sort of think a little bit more of older adults being a little more fragile. And I'm always amazed that if you give people time and time to get stronger, how much they can actually do. 
So, you know, it's, I think all of these are very personal questions too. Like if I'm concerned about my parent doing too much, that is their choice to do it. I just want to make sure that they've got the tools in place to do whatever they want to do. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't think there's any like straightforward answer to that because it's all very situational, but, but just making sure that you've got the key pieces in place so that the things that you're asking of your body to do, your body's prepared to do. Yeah. Well, it sounds like, I mean, I think one of the key takeaways that I'm taking from listening to you is that especially as one gets older, you have to be really proactive about maintaining power and by power, meaning the actual strength in those leg muscles. Um, because if you're not sort of pushing yourself at least a little bit, then it might just start going down on its own. Like you have to like really be proactive about maintaining it. And for many people, even improving it if it has slid down too much. Absolutely. And, and there's a large body of literature looking at specifically power training and strength training with older adults. And the results are very, very, very strong that people benefit from it. And they see huge improvements, not only in strength, but also in walking, energy levels, you name it. It really, it really makes a big difference. Okay. So it sounds like that should be a key part of any older person's uh, exercise program, especially if they're getting older or are particularly concerned about falls. Well, let's talk now about some of the types of exercises that people sometimes attempt as part of this. And you can tell us whether it's true that these are effective or whether it's a myth. So let me bring up one that I hear about sometimes, the chair exercise programs. I think many of us have seen people sometimes in residential facilities mm-hmm. sitting in chairs doing, uh, being led in exercises um, by someone and there are videos that do chair exercises. How are those um, helpful and are they enough for fall prevention? Yeah, so, so chair exercises are... Um unfortunately not terribly beneficial. They're a good place to start for someone who is new to exercise. Um, But the fact of the matter is, is that we typically don't fall from a chair. (laughs) We typically fall from standing. Um, And we need our bodies to be strong to hold us upright throughout our day. And if you're in the chair, exercising in the chair, there's not a lot of functional benefit you can get from that. You can definitely get some decent stretching from it. You can get upper body work as long as, you know, you're you're really using weights and you're really good with your form. But my mantra about chair exercise is that, you know, if you go to a chair exercise class, you can start in the chair, but you need to get on your feet as quickly as possible to really get that benefit from exercise. And there's little... I've actually never seen a published study showing the benefit of chair exercise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, people love to exercise, like facilities like to have chair exercise classes because you do minimize your risk of falling. Right. Because everybody's in the chair, but you're not really getting that benefit that you need. Yeah. I can sort of see how you might be able to do, as you said, some stretching exercises or maybe certain things for strength, but in terms of balance, it seems like it's uh, it would be hard to really work your your balance from from the chair. And uh, you know, earlier you were talking about strengthening the legs, but what about the core? Is it important to do exercises that strengthen the the core? I feel like for younger people, there's been all this interest in core strength, Pilates, and so forth. Is that also really valuable for older adults, or less so? It, it is. It's absolutely valuable because the thing is, is if your core is strong 
you can do just about anything. So, you know, your core muscles are your back muscles, your, your glute muscles, your bottom muscles, and your belly muscles. And when they hold you up and they're stable, you have many more degrees of freedom. But if they're loosey-goosey and, and that's where we get a lot of back pain and, you know, more hunching, all of that can come from a weak core. So the stronger your core is, the more aligned your body will be. The more aligned your body will be, the better it will be able to function and function efficiently. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now I'd love to get your take on another type of exercise program that people sometimes ask me about, which is the ones that are based in water. So things like pool aerobics or exercise programs that take place when one is immersed in water. I think the draw for for older people is, again, the fall risk is greatly reduced. You can't you probably can't break your hip once you're actually in the water if you fall, although it might be slippery getting in and out. And then I think also people sometimes have arthritis pains, which make it painful or uncomfortable for them to be up. So, uh, so those, those seem to draw a lot of people, but how beneficial are they when it comes to the type of, uh, strengthening that prevents falls? Yeah. So water, water classes, water training, um, water aerobics, they're all great starting points, especially for people who have joint issues that really impacts their ability to comfortably exercise. So I love starting in the water, but the problem is if you don't get out of the water, you're again, you're not training your body to function optimally against gravity. Mm. So you really need you really need to be on the land to get the full benefit. So you can you can definitely improve your range of motion in the water. You can get a great aerobic workout. To some extent, you can do some strengthening, but you're not going to get that full benefit unless you're on the land. Okay, great. So now sort of moving on from exercises and just to another angle on fall prevention. So often when an older person starts to have falls, I feel like it's the family more than the older person himself or herself, but sometimes also is brought up by my older patients. But, you know, the question of assistive devices comes up, specifically canes and walkers. Can't we get this person a cane or walker and will that prevent falls? So maybe we can start with canes since I feel like those are the ones that the older adults are usually more willing to consider. Tell us about canes. Do they prevent falls? Is that a myth or a truth? Um, that is definitely a myth. Um, there's, there's no data that shows that a cane specifically prevents a fall. Uh, in fact, there was a study published years ago um, looking at emergency room admissions due to a fall and assistive devices were implicated meaning that they caused the fall in 30% mm. of all ED visits. Um, yeah. And, and we sort of have this assumption. Um, I always joke about it with my medical students, but, you know, oh, you've had a fall. Here's your cane. And there's something in our DNA that turns on at the age of 65 that, you know, we automatic, automatically know how to use the cane and use the cane correctly. <laughs> And, and that just simply isn't the case. Um, assistive devices are completely appropriate in the right situation, but they're completely inappropriate as, as a solution for everyone. Mm -hmm. so. so when do canes help? Like who might be a good uh, candidate for a cane and what kinds of problems can a cane help with? 
So what a cane really does is it increases your base of support. So what it does is instead of your base of support being your two feet and the distance between those two feet, the cane gives you this tripod. And so you have a much wider base of support. Canes are helpful for people who are a little bit unsteady, who can really, you know, once you increase that base of support, it gives them what they need in order to stay upright. So really canes are most appropriate for people who are just starting to have some balance issues or for people who have any sort of neuropathy, meaning that they don't have really good sensation in their feet, um, or who have any sort of proprioception issues, meaning they don't really know where their feet are in space. So those are really the ideal folks to, to use a cane. Um, we, we love using canes because they're so portable, but they don't really provide that much stability. And does it help if the cane is one of those sort of four-pronged canes versus a single one or not so much? Not so much. The problem with the four-pronged canes is they're, they're quite heavy. Um, and people tend, when you see people walking with them, they really change the way they walk. People like them because they don't fall over, but they're big and bulky. And actually, it's pretty easy to trip on them. Mm -hmm. Um those four-pronged canes were originally uh, meant for younger people who um, actually were recovering from back surgery because you can put a little more weight on them um, and for patients after they've had a stroke. But as a, as a general cane to use, they, they typically can cause a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. And then how much mental coordination does it take to correctly use a cane? Because sometimes, you know, the question is the person might have uh, mild Alzheimer's or another form of mild dementia. So be a little forgetful. So is a cane uh, potentially a viable option or is it not such a good idea if a person is getting a little forgetful? Again, it's a case by case basis. Um, I am very conservative with prescribing assistive devices. So I want to make sure that, you know, the person is aware of the device, they know how to use it, they're comfortable using it. And some people, especially when you're starting to have some cognitive impairment, if you consistently use the cane, especially early on in the process, it's fantastic because that motor path, that motor program is there. And so as the disease progresses, it's, they're going to be programmed to use the cane because they have been using it. But oftentimes later on in the disease progression, it, it can be a huge problem because either you forget how to use it, you forget you've got it, you trip over it because you forgot you put it in a, in a certain place and it can be a real problem. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now what about walkers? Do walkers help prevent falls? Um, again, no assistive device has been proven to prevent a fall. Uh, an assistive device can definitely enhance someone's stability. Um, and again, with walkers, they're, for certain people, they're fantastic. They provide that extra support. They provide that extra stability. Um, but for other people, they get in the way. Um, you know, it's hard to figure out how to use it exactly the right way. And again, people with cognitive impairment, I've actually had several patients who have literally gotten into their walker, got confused, forgot what they were doing, and, and, just, and just had a fall because they've been in the walker and just forgot about it. So with all of these things, we just always, I mean, I, it's always a good idea 
to go and get evaluated by a physical therapist just to say, what is the right assistive device for you? And then what's the most conservative measure? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, I feel like a lot of people end up using one of these devices because they, um, well, canes, they might just buy on their own. And then I, I feel like people often sort of get a walker from somebody else. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. Because yeah. someone's given a walker after a surgery or something and then it's there in the garage and it's like, oh, here, you know, here's a, a, a walker. I, so I take it it's better to be evaluated and make sure that it's correctly adjusted and that it's the right device for you. Absolutely. And if you have the fit wrong, it can really be a problem and it actually won't help you. Like if you are a short person with a tall walker, it's really not going to work for you. It's not, you know, it it does absolutely have to be fit. Um, And then the other thing we always want to look at too, and I think it's something that people don't think about all that much, but is that when you're using a cane or more importantly with a walker, it really does change the way you walk. So typically when people first get a walker, they're going to start looking down. um, They're really going to round their spine. And all of these things result in a lot of inefficiencies because we're not supposed to look down when we walk. We're supposed to, you know, our head's supposed to be on our shoulders. We're supposed to be looking straight ahead. Um, So that can actually sort of almost create... um, a positive feedback loop where, you know, we're getting weak, we're using a walker, but now we're changing the way we're walking and now we're getting even weaker and we're getting more tired. So we have to just be really aware of all those things. Mm-hmm. So given that walkers can be problematic, especially if people are, are, are older and frailer or are getting forgetful, what can families do when they have somebody who's quite older and frail and, and is forgetful, you know, has mild or moderate dementia, because I think you and I have certainly seen lots of, of older adults like this who, you know, they need help to get up out of the chair and then they're, they're quite, they're quite wobbly and, um, and it doesn't look like they, they might be quite forgetful with the walker, but you know, what's your alternative? I think families, um, and also a lot of, you know, doctors feel a little stuck. You're not convinced they could use the walker safely, but having them without a device looks also extremely unsafe. So, so what are the options for that situation? Yeah. So we don't have a lot of great ones. Um, but the first thing I always do is look at the home environment and I look at how my patient is interacting with their home environment. Mm. So if they're in an environment that they have been in for 30 years and they've got all of those, you know, that, that, they have that internal map of where everything is, you watch them navigate their environment and they will just have a path where, you know, okay, I'm going to hold on to the sofa right now. And I'm going to, we call it, you know, sometimes we call it furniture surfing, but, you know, and, and if, if there's a path in place and if nobody messes the path up and that person can navigate with confidence, I actually think that's an absolutely fine way to do it. And, you know, you can even set up, okay, rest stops here and there. Um, You know, and that's for your really progressive, progressive person that, you know, they just, you know, that the cane or the walker is not going to help. When you take that person out and you're sort of in, you're in a more supervised situation, a cane would be, or a walker would be completely fine to get from point A to point B. Um, So I think it's just 
figuring out like what the options are. The worst case scenario is, you know, you have someone who's starting to decline and then somebody comes in and totally cleans the house and rearranges the furniture to make quote the home safe, um, you know, mm-hmm. and then, and, and then everything's changed and then a walker appears. It's like, you've got to go slow, figure out what's going to work with, with the older adult and then figure out what is what is going to be the path of least resistance and also just being very honest that we cannot prevent all falls right it it's impossible and and there does come a point where you just have to focus on the fact that the older adult is probably going to fall and what can we do to prevent an injury from that fall mhm I think also that people are you know sometimes looking for for quicker solutions and that part of the solution might be to help the older adult build up that strength, but that's going to be a process, mm-hmm. um, especially if they have some cognitive impairment, because then they might need a lot of supervision and coaxing and encouragement to do the exercises. And so there's just no like device that you can get from the therapist that's going to suddenly magically make them safe. Exactly, exactly. Though I do have to say, um, I've been working with a facility for a couple of years now where they started um, an exercise program in their long-term care facility. Um, and it was, it was, it was based on the Otago exercise program. So only one exercise was done in sitting. And, and these were very frail individuals who were experiencing multiple falls. And it took about a year, but they really started seeing big improvements in mobility, in strength, far fewer falls, and more importantly, far fewer injuries from falls. But it took that dedication of the facility to know that this isn't going to happen overnight. You know, we're going to give it time. Um, But they really did start seeing those benefits by putting that in. Wow, that is amazing. And did any of those older adults participating in that have some dementia? Or were they all just kind of weaker and physically frail? Oh, no, the, the majority of them had some degree of dementia. Okay, so so the facility just kind of put in the time to give them lots of reminders and help them do it. Yeah, and they were also very consistent about um, time. I mean, so here's the things that we know, you know, if you're consistent with time and place um, and person. So very, you know, the, the person who was performing the act, who was instructing the exercises was one of two people. Um, the exercises were done at almost the exact same time every day. It was done with the exact same music. So all of those those bits and pieces of the brain that was able to connect with what was happening started internalizing that, okay, it's 10 o'clock. I'm hearing the same music. It's time to go exercise. Mm-hmm. So it worked out really well. Yeah. Cause they kind of, um, you know, made it easier for them to, I guess, as you were saying, you know, building the, the pattern, right? Yep. The movement pattern, they sort of uh, created a routine so that these residents had the movement pattern for doing the exercises. That's fantastic. That's really inspiring. But also, I think, you know, take some time and energy and uh, thought to to invest in it. So I guess one of my questions for you is going to be, is it is it true that some people are too old or frail or unsteady to participate in an exercise program? And I guess the answer is probably not. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, pretty much everyone. Um, One of the reasons I actually got into geriatrics was I I read a study that was actually published in the early 90s, and it was with um, non-engineerians. And, you know, they basically took a bunch of people in their 90s, and they did strength training with them, and it was weight training. Um, 
And it was just a really inspiring study because they all got stronger. And the control group was a, a bunch of 30-year-olds. And what they found was that the people in their mid-90s actually gained the same amount of relative muscle mass as the individuals in their 30s um, and then showed huge improvements in function and ability and mood and quality of life. Um, but then after the study, when they stopped, they lost the muscle mass twice as fast as the 30-year-olds. So it was, it was pretty, pretty interesting. Interesting, um, pretty interesting study, but really just like, yeah, anybody can exercise at any point in time. Right. But again, especially as you get older, you got to be proactive and keep, keep doing it, you know, absolutely. And, and keep uh, building it. So I, I think I asked you this in, you know, the, the previous episode, but I'm going to ask it again. So, so if people listening to this think, uh, oh, you know, I'm older, my mom's older, I, I got to really go and like find myself some of these strengthening programs, um, where can they go? And specifically, you know, lots of people advertise exercise classes for older adults. Mm -hmm. Are they all good? And how do people know when they found something that's going to really do for them what they need? Short of getting a personal consultation with a very experienced physical therapist such as yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's some really interesting things happening at the national level to improve the quality of programming for, um, for older adults. Um, and so if you were to say, go to a senior center or to a YMCA, you'd want to ask if they have evidence-based health promotion programming. And what that means is, are they offering programs that have been tested in a research setting and validated and proven effective? And there are programs that are recognized by both the Centers for Disease Control and the National Council on Aging that have been tested very rigorously and are currently available in every state in the United States. Some are specific to falls prevention, some are more specific to general health and wellness. But so like around falls prevention, um, there is the Otago Exercise Program, which is delivered by a physical therapist. And we're currently in the process of really disseminating that program to PTs, but then there's also enhanced fitness. There's matter of balance, which is a balance confidence improvement program. Um, there's chronic disease self-management program, which was actually developed and tested out of Stanford by Kate Lorg. So, so if you're looking, if you're shopping around, you know, first ask, you know, do you have any evidence-based programs? Um, and so that's the first place. And if wherever you're going says no, <laughs> which is okay. Um, then you want to look at, at what, what is the quality of the programming? So going to a class and looking to see, um, you know, are all the exercises obviously done in a chair or are some done in standing? Um, is the instructor showing me different levels? Do I have a level where I can hang on to something with both my hands, but are other people, you know, not holding on at all? Um, do I feel challenged by the class? Um, those types of things, which I think just being a smart shopper and really knowing that, you know, whatever you do with your time, you want to get the most out of it. So finding the right class is really important. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I think it wasn't necessarily obvious to me that the exercise should, you know, eventually get harder. I think sometimes people think they can just keep doing the same exercise over and over again for months. But but in many cases, the, the exercise should start off uh, easier, but then get get harder because either, as you were saying, you sort of take your hands off if it's a balance exercise or if it's a strengthening one, they they add a little bit more weight. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And 
I think we just need to keep thinking of ourselves as athletes and, and the event we're training for is aging. Um, you know, and, and so, so a runner, if a runner is going to run a 5k, they're going to run a mile first. And when that mile is easy, then they're going to run a mile and a half. And if they just keep running that mile, they're never going to get to run that 5k because they're never going to have trained for it. And it's the exact same thing. We have to constantly be challenging ourselves to get the greatest benefit from what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I thought of two more things that I'm going to briefly ask you about, and then and then I'll ask you to tell us a little bit more about what you're doing now. So uh, assistive devices, I forgot to ask about trekking poles. So I don't see these quite as often, but every now and then I see an older person, certainly while hiking, well, you see people, adults really of all ages with the two trekking poles, but every now and then I see an older person in the city going around the two trekking poles. Is that a good option for some people? Who's that good for and who's that less good for? Yeah, it is. It's a really nice option. And the thing that's great about the trekking poles is that it puts you in a much more upright position. So um, so automatically your posture is going to be better. The trekking poles are definitely a bit of a challenge for people who are less coordinated. So I always, if, so I look at trekking poles for people who are, are pretty active who are starting to lose some confidence in their balance and who have a strong enough core to hold them up for longer distances. So it's sort of those people who are just starting to decline. Um, but I've always, I've been really impressed at, at who can actually use trekking poles. And I've had people surprise me as well. Like people I thought who weren't corded enough or didn't have good enough balance can really master them. So, um, but it does take a, it's, it's a little bit more of a, you have to be a little bit more fit to use them as well. Well, it might be actually serve a little bit for, you know, for maintaining the brain too, right? Because uh, you're giving the brain a little bit more to do and the brain also to a certain extent when it's given more to do that helps it, you know, maintain its, its connections and its abilities. Absolutely. Well, great. Well, that was super helpful. So the other thing I would love your take on is yoga, because I know more and more older adults are doing yoga. It's super popular. And every now and then people ask me if that's good for fall prevention. And I especially wanted your take on it because uh, uh, although yoga is very popular, certainly for, for younger adults, the sort of issue of getting injured in yoga has come up, which makes me wonder, are older adults at particular risk of being injured from a yoga class if they're, if they're not careful about what kind of yoga they do? So what's your take on yoga? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, so the yoga can be fantastic, but there's very little quality control within yoga classes. So if you go to a Hatha yoga class on Monday and go to a different Hatha yoga class on Tuesday, those classes may not look anything like each other. So it's really difficult to say that yoga can be good to prevent a fall because there's so much variety in how it's taught. So I, again, if I'm, if I have an older adult who wants to do yoga, then I'll say, go to the class and either observe or actually take the class. And let's make sure that, you know, there's modifications being offered for each pose that they are doing. Again, chair yoga sometimes gets really popular. You know, are you out of the chair? Um, you know, what are they actually doing in the class? And and does this class resonate with you? 
And I'm actually going to talk about Tai Chi for a second as well, because, you know, usually if people go down the path of yoga, then they start saying, well, what about Tai Chi? And Tai Chi is really fascinating because the Tai Chi forms have not changed for the past 2000 years or so. Um, so they really are consistent. So if you go to a Tai Chi class and if it's a yin form or if it's a sun form, it's going to be the exact same thing. So in research, we've done a ton of work with Tai Chi because it's so standardized. And we know that Tai Chi can be incredibly effective um, because it's done the same way every time. It's done all in standing. There's weight shifting. And it also, if you do Tai Chi three times a week, it hits your minimum number of, of uh, balance of hours that you need for balance and strength. Yeah. I guess, is it especially good for balance or does it also work strength enough to qualify as your strength exercises? The primary focus is balance, but because so much is done in standing and so much is done in a, in a squat, people get some good strength benefits from it as well. Great. Well, super good to know. So now, now that you've recently left UNC and you've gone into the private sector and you're actually working with, you know, an interesting new company. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing at this, this new company. Yeah. So this company is called Seismic and um, I joined in February and, and we are very new and, and we're based in Menlo Park. And the, our product that we're creating is powered clothing and powered clothing is basically an extra set of external muscles that can assist you with different movements. So it's a very interesting idea. Um, people sometimes think about exoskeletons. So I, if, if people have seen some of the exoskeleton research where you have something that you wear on the outside of you that is quite hard and can move you 100%, and it's really an amazing intervention for someone like a par who has paraplegia. And or maybe a stroke. Literally, a stroke, right? So our technology is soft. So it's actually designed to be worn under clothing. And right now we have features of um, helping provide assistance for rising out of a chair. We provide assistance for, uh, we have a core support assist feature. And the whole idea is to have something that's light and soft and that does not, it will not move you 100%. It just gives you that extra assistance if you need it. So our standing support feature, you know, if you're if you're at Disneyland with your grandkids and there's a lot of walking and there's a lot of stopping and there's a lot of standing, it can be really exhausting. Um, this could literally give you just that extra bit of support and stability to to keep you going all day long. Wow. Well, that's um, fantastic. That sounds really fascinating. I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes next. Well, Tiffany, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining us again to uh, tell us more about mobility and fall prevention. I always love learning from you because I always learn a lot and I'm sure the audience has. And we'll have to have you back again at some point because uh, to hear more about what, what Seismic has come up with and what new innovations are going to help keep older adults mobile and active as they age. That sounds fantastic. This has been a lot of fun. And uh, thank you so much for the opportunity to, to talk with you and to talk with your listeners as well. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. 
To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.